0: Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, dedicated to
1: advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.
2: Justin, and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell. Starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim. Sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?
0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: bacteria, CRISPR is used to find and cut up virus DNA. And once we understood that and how it worked, we realized that we could program it to find and cut sequences in human DNA that triggers a change to the DNA sequence at that place. And I think that, you know, what we'll see in the next, say, five years is going to be, you know, some really exciting science that shows us how gene editing can, in fact, have a profound impact on diseases that, up until now, have had no therapies, you know, no real, real treatments, much less uh, a cure.
0: That's Jennifer Dowdner. A scientist who had a quiet but productive life, studying how bacteria fend off viruses. And then in a few short years, she rocketed to superstar status. She became a winner of the Kavli Prize in nanoscience. Her development of the CRISPR system, along with fellow Kavli laureates Emmanuel Charpentier and Virginia Schicknes, has revolutionized medical research, and it's given researchers unprecedented power to alter genes. We talked about what this means for developing new treatments for human diseases, and we also talked about her experience becoming one of the world's most sought-after scientists. I'm so happy to be talking to you today, partly because, naturally, partly because of this amazing thing you co-invented, but also because it came out of basic science, basic research that you were doing, this kind of esoteric thing that I find very interesting, and you obviously found interesting, which was how bacteria fend off viruses. We were doing that just for the joy of learning, right? Of understanding?
3: Absolutely, yeah. Joy of joy of finding things out, as Richard Feynman said.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. First of all, it's so interesting that bacteria evolved the ability to fend off a virus. These little guys had this sophisticated tool to do it. How did you figure out that that would somehow be useful to humans.
3: Well, let's go back to where where this all began. In the bacterial world, there's an ongoing uh, warfare between viruses and their hosts, these bacterial cells, that scientists have been studying for a long time because they're trying to figure out fundamentally, how is it that um, you know, that, that cells are able to protect themselves from getting taken over by a virus? So in the case of uh, CRISPR, which is really what we're talking about here, CRISPR is an immune system in bacteria. And so I got involved in this research because of a colleague of mine at my university, uh, University of California, Berkeley, named Jillian Banfield, who studies bacteria in their natural environments. And she had noticed that a lot of bacteria are able to acquire little pieces of DNA from viruses that infect them. And so they keep a essentially a genetic vaccination card in their genome, in their DNA. Isn't that crazy? It provides a, a record of past virus infections. And so she noticed this and wondered why those virus uh, DNA molecules were being stored and what they might be doing. And uh, she contacted me because my laboratory does work in biochemistry and we've had a long uh, standing interest in understanding how cells control their genetic information and she wondered if we might partner to understand this this uh, how this immune system operated and that's how we got going on on what became a really exciting area of research when we figured out with a collaborator Emmanuel Charpentier in 2012 that this immune system could, in fact, be used to cut DNA precisely. It was then, I would say, basically immediately clear that this could be harnessed as a tool to trigger genetic changes in cells because many cells, including human cells, are able to fix breaks in DNA as such as those that are introduced by CRISPR And in the process, make a change to the coded information. And what CRISPR does is allow scientists to decide where to break the DNA. It's a programmable system that can be told where to go in all of the DNA that's found in a cell and make a precise uh, cut that triggers a change to the DNA sequence at that place.
0: When you figured out, you and Emmanuel Charpentier, when you figured out that you could do this, one of the things that interests me so much is that you immediately thought of ethical concerns
3: For me that you know that that really came up very early in this whole line of research because it was pretty much immediately clear that you know this technology was uh, very effective and could work in any type of cell, including in in human embryos. And so the question was what do we what do we do with a very powerful technology like that. It obviously has potential to do wonderful things, but it also ha- comes along with some pretty profound
0: risks. That, that, it seems like there are at least two problems that leap to mind. One is the attempt to create a master race or to concentrate on otherwise trivial things like beauty or strength or height. When in fact, there's this other consideration, which is that when you mess around with DNA, because it's so complex, because it matters when things are timed and which things cooperate, which genes cooperate with other genes, I imagine it must be difficult to know what you're doing, what, what the unintended consequences will be.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. It's not it's not well uh, known, and uh, in most cases, uh, we don't we don't know the genes that would be responsible for different kinds of traits. In any case, so even if we, you know, thought it was right to to uh, be messing with those, we don't really know what all of the genes are, are that are required uh, for traits like the ones that you mentioned, or even for traits that even for traits that correspond to to disease and. Uh, I think this is one of the big risks of using CRISPR in human embryos.
0: What was the reaction of the people in the rest of the scientific community when you raised the ethical issues?
3: So what I you know, have found is that um, I have found that you know, I think many people in the scientific and clinical uh, communities around the world have appreciated the, this, this issue and, and I think have gotten behind it. We've seen tremendous cooperation among scientists in various kinds of scientific societies and meetings that, you know, have been involved in at, you know, actively discussing this topic and, and thinking together about how we encourage active research and, and we don't slow down the science, but we do it. In a way that always is paying attention to the responsibility of, of what we're doing. Now, I'd like to point something out here in case it's not clear because this question has come up quite a bit, but you know, I want to draw a very big distinction between using CRISPR in human embryos, which is a, in one, in a sense is a, you know, just one type of use of CRISPR that is, um, by far, you know, very, very minimal right now. Most of the work going on around the world with CRISPR, the vast majority is not to edit human embryos, but it's actually to use CRISPR in human individuals to treat disease. And so there's a lot of exciting work ongoing, even uh, right now with, with various clinical trials that are using CRISPR to do things like Edit human immune cells so that they're better at fighting cancer, and I think, you know, for most people, that's uh, there really isn't an ethical concern there beyond what you concerns you would have for any kind of new therapy that needs to be shown to be safe and effective. Uh, CRISPR, for me, in those kinds of settings, falls into that category rather than having a lot of ethical issues surrounding it.
0: There's a technical question I have that is probably ranks as a dumb question but i I don't quite get the process if you if you change one cell you go into one cell and you change the DNA how does that affect the whole body
3: actually that's a really key question Alan it's not a dumb question at all because that is frankly one of the current Challenges technically in the field of genome editing is how do we ensure that cells that need to be edited um, are edited in in an individual? And how do you make sure that you're not just editing one cell, which would, you know, probably most in most cases maybe have a minimal or no impact on the person, but in, in fact that you're editing all of the types of cells that need to be changed? And um, and so right now, uh, what's happening is that um, uses of CRISPR are focused on cells that can be taken from a patient. So these are cells of the blood system, like um, you know immune cells that are found in our blood, or even um, uh, precursors to, to red blood cells, where they can be taken out into the laboratory, they can be edited there. You can verify that the correct edit was made and that Many cells actually receive that change to the DNA, and then the cells can be put back into the person. And so, reasons to do this would include not only treating cancer, like we talked about, but also treating blood disorders like sickle cell anemia. Imagine that you could use CRISPR to correct the mutation in the beta globin gene that causes sickle cell disease. This would be extraordinary for for people that suffer from this disorder. And so that's work that is actively underway. Um, Now, it's going to be harder if we start... asking, you know, how can we use CRISPR to treat uh, muscle disease like muscular dystrophy? Or how could we treat a lung disease like cystic fibrosis? There, you know, we come back to this challenge of how do we ensure that we get many, many cells edited of the type uh, that we need to to see a therapeutic benefit? And that's really, I would say, right at the cutting edge of the field right now is figuring out the answer to that question.
0: So is the process something like this that you tell CRISPR where to go, and you put a whole bunch of them in the body and hope it reaches all the cells of that kind you want to reach?
3: Yes, that's essentially the strategy.
0: And what, what's the? how do you know how many you've reached, just to see what the effect it has in the general health? Or do, is there a way to do a blood test? or what? How do you know you've done it?
3: Well, um, so currently, the, that type of approach is being tested in animals, primarily in in mouse, uh, mouse models of human disease. And there are what people, what researchers do is they do exactly what you said. They introduce uh, CRISPR into these animals and um, look for evidence that cells that need editing have in fact uh, been edited. And, and how do you do that? Well, um, there are some cute tricks that can be played with uh, cells that turn color when they get edited. And that's being done in, you know, a mouse system where you can actually track visually the edits to the cells. But of course, that, that will be, that's kind of a special case. Most, in most applications, we won't have that luxury of, you know, seeing a visual change to the cell. So, so I think in the long term, what will happen is that it'll be as you, as you said, that basically, um, this, um, editing tool will be used in a way that, uh, that basically um, tries to access the cells that need editing. And then we'll look for a response in the animal or eventually in the person that would reflect a large number of edits being introduced into a large number of cells.
0: It sounds like you're still in the process of discovery that'll probably never end.
3: Well
0: that's science, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's wonderful. It's it's one it's one of the wonderful aspects. Every time you open a door, there are a hundred other doors. Exactly. Can,
3: we'll never you, we'll never get bored.
0: Yeah, right. You started to talk about this a minute ago. What are some of the things it's already being used for? First of all, the the, the technology has advanced a lot in the few years since you figured this out, right? What, what's it? What's it already being used for, and what do you think is likely to come next?
3: Yeah, well, those are those are great questions, so, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. There's uh, there's many many things I could I could tell you, um, but but I think. Um, on the medical front, you know, we're already seeing uh, clinical trials with CRISPR, which is amazing. And that's being the, those trials are focused right now on editing immune cells in cancer patients to make the their immune system better at attacking cancer cells. And the other thing is um, looking at specific kinds of genetic disease, both in the eye, so diseases of the eye and diseases of the blood, as we mentioned with sickle cell disease, and using CRISPR to make the kinds of precise genetic changes that will be therapeutically beneficial to people that suffer from those diseases. And I think that, you know, what we'll see in the next, say, five years with with those trials and ones that are coming along in the near future is going to be, you know, some really exciting uh, science that shows us how gene editing can, in fact, have a profound impact on diseases that up until now have had no Therapies, you know, no real, real treatments, much less uh, a cure. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that, you know, that we're going to see real promise there. Secondly, I would say that, you know, in, in agriculture, we didn't talk about this yet, but, you know, there's enormous opportunities to use genome editing to change the DNA in plants to make plants better at dealing with things like drought, pests, uh, the impacts of climate change, even making plants more nutritious or safer to to use. And so I think, you know, that's an area where, you know, already there are both companies and academic scientists who are using CRISPR to edit wheat, rice, sorghum, you know, corn, all of the kind of major crops, as well as uh doing things in uh, plants like tomatoes, you know, to make tomatoes that make tomato plants that make really tasty tomatoes, but a lot more of them.
0: Okay, I have one for you to work on. I need a tomato that already has the hot pepper in it.
3: That would be good. (laughs)
0: When we come back, I'll talk with Jennifer Doudna about how she manages her new, hectic life, as well as how she manages the army of young researchers who work with her, after this. The sponsor of Clear and Vivid is the Kavli Foundation, a partner in the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The 2020 Kavli Prize laureates were announced on May 27th with the participation of the World Science Festival and the festival's co founder, Brian Green. You can watch the announcement and meet this year's winners, as well as learn more about the history of the Kavli Prize, at kavliprize.org. That's K A V L I Prize.org. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the Kavli Foundation. In some future episodes of Clear and Vivid, I'll be talking with several other Kavli Prize laureates, and I'll be exploring with them the very big, our universe, the very small, the realm of atoms and molecules, and the very complex, the brain and the nervous system. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer, Graham Chet, and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldus Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
1: That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jennifer Dowden. You went from working on something that was really interesting but basic research to something that exploded in the imagination of the whole world. And you're, you're a superstar now. How has your life changed by that? Do you have time? Do you have time to do any of the other things you used to do?
3: Well, that, that's that's funny uh, coming from you, Alan. I mean, I, I used to watch you on Nash, you know, when I was growing up, and um, it's kind of astounding to be uh, sitting here talking to you and hear, hearing you say that. But, um, but you know, I, I would say that you know, I, I grew up in a small town in in Hawaii, and uh, you know, I I just I love science, and I, I had you know I had dreams about you know becoming a scientist someday. And, you know, the whole CRISPR um, experience for me has been beyond anything I could have ever imagined or, or predicted, you know. And and I have to say that's, that's one of the wonderful things about science is that it just, you know, it goes in unexpected directions. I don't really know where my uh, work will be uh, a year from now or three years from now. You know, we're going to follow it uh, where it leads. But, you know, but in terms of how it's affected my life, I mean, it's, you know, it's changed everything for me, really. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, my, it's not only changed the direction of my research, and I was not, I was not working on genome editing in any way, you know, uh, coming into this. And, um, and now I, you know, I run an institute now called the Innovative Genomics Institute, where we're focused on using genome editing for both uh, biomedical and agricultural applications. I have a a large team of scientists that I'm really proud to be working with on on these on these problems and, and really trying to figure out how we make sure the technology benefits a large number of people and, and not just just a, a wealthy few and so you know these are things that are very important to me and um, um, so I've you know I really had to learn a lot of things that I didn't get exposed to previously when I was uh, you know kind of an RNA biochemist uh, you know sort of for, uh, forging ahead in, in my uh, my little academic research lab and uh and then also on the on the you know you asked about you know uh, do i ever have time to to get out you know i've found that um and i'm wondering if you, you found this too as an actor but i think that creative work requires uh it requires your mind to be um free-flowing in some way you know and i i've often found that my best ideas come when i'm not when i'm Hunched over my desk or my computer, and you know, trying to think of something. But they come when I'm out, you know, hiking in in the hills above my house, or uh, you know, working, digging out weeds in my garden, or you know, just you know, doing doing things like that. And I, so I really try to make time to get out and uh, you know, get out into nature and and take advantage of, of the, the the fantastic uh, area here in Northern California that that we live in, because it does I do I do find that that's where my inspiration often will come
0: from. I think that's true for everybody who's creative or inventive in any way. I had a good friend who was an extremely popular novelist, and he would go driving for two or three hours with a notepad next to him. And distracting himself with the driving brought all these ideas forward in his head. There's more work going on in the back of the brain than than we give credit to.
3: I agree completely.
0: What about since your life is so different now, you're the head of the, of this Institute. Do you find that your life, your, your working life is more filled with administration and leadership? Do you have enough time? Do you have any time at the bench where you can get inspiration and try it out and then go back and forth like that? Just mess around. Do you, can you do that? <laughs>
3: Well, it's been honestly quite a few years since I myself have been doing experiments at the lab bench, sadly, because I, I, I do love that. Um, but I do have the great pleasure of working with students and, um, and other scientists who, who work in our, in our laboratories at the Innovative Genomics Institute and in my, my own academic lab. I, I talk with them every day. You know, we, we talk or, or communicate sometimes by, uh, electronic means every day. And, um, and, uh, that, those, those discussions are always about, What's the science we're doing? What's the question we're trying to address in the lab? Are we doing the right experiment? Or if we've done an experiment, what are the data, and how do we try to understand the data? What's the next thing to do? I really enjoy that process. I mean, that's just for me my lifeblood. You know, I just just love it, and uh, and I do try to protect time uh, to do that. I'm fortunate that. At the institute that I, that I manage, that I run, uh, we have a fantastic team of people. So I'm not in any way doing this alone. And I, I just make sure that I carve out time to, to do what I really enjoy doing, which is thinking and working on the science.
0: You know, something that occurred to me while we were talking is that the, the timeline, the history of this discovery was marked by your association in what we've been talking about today with two other women. And the three of you, if you had been busy at work 50 or 100 years ago, would have had a hard time individually getting to the point of being able to collaborate or to find one another and collaborate. Does that make you more interested at all in helping other women in their science careers?
3: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one, one of the things that uh, this is kind of going back to your earlier question about what has changed for me. But I, I have found that over the last few years, as I have traveled around uh, giving lectures about my work and uh, talking about CRISPR and, and the, the whole, you know, background Story that I think people find so interesting that it really did come out of a, a very fundamental science uh, curiosity driven kind of project and what i've found is that um, first of all that that I think that that story is really inspiring to younger people who are considering a career in science or maybe are already starting out you know very early in their career in science they find that inspiring and and I think that for for young women, especially, I think to see um, other women who are, you know, ahead of them in terms of career, blazing the trail, and um, people that they can can uh, look to as, um, you know, at some level as mentors or or sort of uh, role models. I know that that. Was very important for me early in my career. And I, I'm kind of a little bit stunned, but you know, I think it is true that now I'm, I'm stepping into that role, you know, and I, it means a lot to me that, that I'm able to talk with a lot of these students and um, work with them either by, you know, helping them with uh, questions they might have or showing them around the University of California campus. If they come to visit, you know, we try to do whatever we can to reach out to students because we know that it's really important for them to to have role models and and i think especially for underrepresented groups in the stem fields so whether they're women or from from any other kind of underrepresented background and i'll just add one other thing and that is that i've always seen in my own work that our best work in the lab comes when everyone is empowered to to participate and contribute and i think that's that's so, so important and interesting to note that, you know, it, whether the person is uh, the most experienced person in the lab or the least, you know, they all have things to contribute to the work and we really need everybody's engagement. So it's important that everyone feel like they can, can do this. I was
0: just going to ask you about that. Do you? Have, I wondered if you had any special techniques for getting the most out of your your lab and not just getting the most out of them, but getting them to contribute and know they're contributing. How do you do that?
3: Well, I I, um, I give I give people a lot of freedom. I am not a I'm not a micromanager at all. Kind of the opposite. You know, I try to I try to sort of point people in in uh, you know directions that I think are interesting, and uh, I, I I try to help team them up with other people I think they'll enjoy working with, and then I I let them go. You know, and that's often where the most interesting creative work. Comes from. I I still remember. Uh, you know, I was once a Beckman scholar early in my career. This was a, a scholarship that was set up by Arnold O. Beckman, you know, who founded this uh, wonderful technology company, uh, Beckman Instruments, and uh, did many other great things, including starting this this uh, scholarship for scientists. and And his motto was was exactly that. You know, to, to do your best work, you you find outstanding people, and then get out of their way. And that's that's uh, kind of been my philosophy as well.
0: That's probably the best way to work with all creative people. Yeah. Because it's, if, if it's not an idea generated from the back of their brain, it's hard to put it there and have them have any uh, commitment to it.
3: Agreed. And, and th- at the same time, I have always found for myself, and I think this is true for the folks that I work with, that, that uh, you know, sometimes those raw ideas need some sculpting, right? And that's, right. I see that as my role, is to help you know, take the really interesting creative work that they're doing and make sure that it's really channeled in directions that will be effective. Right.
0: I think everybody needs an editor. Everybody needs their own creative crisper at hand.
3: <laughs> well said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How about what we're going through now, COVID-19? Do you you see a role for CRISPR in that?
3: Well, you know, here we are in this extraordinary moment where, you know, worldwide we're facing a pandemic and and it's a, a pandemic caused by a virus. And as we discussed earlier, you know, CRISPR is a, an immune system that allows bacteria to fight viruses. So one of the things that we've all been asking ourselves is, you know, is there a role for CRISPR in this, in this pandemic? And, and also, is there a role for scientists like us that are working on all the topics that we discussed, genome editing, you know, and the ways to cure genetic diseases? Can we take our expertise and focus it on the kinds of of, um, of discoveries and and um, you know research that will have an impact in the immediate future, and I think the answer to both is yes. So I'll, I'll just very briefly tell you what we're up to. So at the Innovative Genomics Institute, we've been able to set up a clinical testing laboratory on a on a you know on a, on a university campus that doesn't have a medical school, which is kind of extraordinary, and uh, that's enabled us to. Um, You know, really allow research teams that are developing different kinds of approaches to this virus to get access to clinical samples and work with them um, under appropriate regulatory approvals. And most pertinent to CRISPR in this regard is actually uh, work that we're doing to develop a better diagnostic for the virus. CRISPR, uh, you know, first and foremost in bacteria, is used to find uh, viruses. And that's what we're thinking will be so effective in this pandemic as a diagnostic tool, be to use CRISPR to alert uh, scientists to an infection, whether it's in a person or even the presence of the virus in environmental samples. And all of that, you know, is going on right now and, and I think will be greatly Enabled and, and um, uh, facilitated by CRISPR, and the other the other possible use of of CRISPR here I think is to uh, to actually directly cut up virus DNA uh, actually the virus, this is an RNA uh, virus so the virus genetic material using. Uh, CRISPR. And there, you know, we know that in a laboratory that approach works well. The challenge there is back to what we discussed earlier. How do we get CRISPR into the cells where it's needed? And that's really where uh, researchers have to, to, you know, focus their attention right now.
0: In using CRISPR as a diagnostic tool, it almost sounds like you're reversing the process rather than telling it where to go and where to cut. You're telling it to go look for of viral dna bring back the bring back the the part the information you need so you can do something about it
3: yeah that's exactly right
0: what a tool with so many different aspects to it it's i great. think
3: of it like a swiss army knife you know it's got yeah. a lot of different
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great As a writer, and I know most writers say this, that there's a moment where you get an idea, you hear a sentence, you hear a joke in your head, you hear some unusual way of phrasing it, and you think, well, where did that come from? Did you ever go through any moments like that in the process of, your, of invention and discovery?
3: Yeah, definitely. I, I think there, there's a lot of similarity to, to uh, you know, other types of, of creative folks and artists when we think about how science is practiced. I, I'm sure most people or, or I suspect I many people that think about scientists don't maybe don't don't think about it in that way. But, you know, I think there's a lot of what I've discovered in, in in my career as a scientist is that science is so much more than just, you know, uncovering some, some data, you know, getting some data or uncovering a, a few facts. It's what it really is. It's really about linking together ideas, you know, linking together things that seemingly are disconnected. And I found that, you know, some of the scientists I most admire, that's what they do really well is they are able to make connections between things that, you know, Seemingly are unrelated and that nobody had sort of suspected were, were connected in the past. And, uh, and so for me, you know, a lot of that, again, a lot of that kind of inspiration comes from, you know, just really being out in nature, right? I just, that, that's what I, that's what I love to do. I love to get out in my yard or even, you know, out, out on a hiking trail. And, and I often find that, you know, I'll be, uh, you know, watching a bird flying, or I'll see some interesting plant growing, or something, and 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 the shape of the the plant, or you know, will will suddenly make me think. Oh, wait, I wonder if we could. You know, uh, does that that looks like a molecule? I've been thinking about. I wonder if it works. This <laughs> way. You know, things like that, right? So. <laughs> That's
0: great. That's so great. I think it's wonderful to to express the artistic nature of science. I mean, certainly science. There's, there are a lot of correlations. Science is rigorous and we don't think of art as being rigorous sometimes but it is not just not just any note will do in a symphony and
3: yeah or any word in a in a paragraph right i mean
0: right right you, just, you the, the one of the big differences you don't have to prove you're right when you when you write an essay
3: well that's true that's true <laughs>
0: You know people have said to me are you do you think about the work you've done are you proud of it what are you what's your feeling about it how do you how do you look back on the past few years where you you entered a world that didn't exist before you created a world that didn't exist does that does that amaze you still or or is it part of just part of life now
3: uh it, it amazes me every day every day, Alan. It's just unbelievable. I mean, you know, just the, the, uh, to think about the, the work that was done originally with Emmanuel, which still gives me just fundamental joy to think about, right? It was such a fun project and it was so incredibly interesting to figure out how this immune system works and then to understand in that moment that it could be used as a powerful technology. Um, And then, you know, all of the incredible things that have happened over the last eight years since we we first published that work. You know, it's just been been uh, an extraordinary opportunity. So I I think mostly I feel gratitude. I really do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just been such a such an incredible opportunity for me and and really a joy to be involved in it.
0: I think we've come to the end of the conversation in the time we have, but we usually end our, our conversations with seven quick questions that are not embarrassing, Okay. but they have something generally often to do with communication and relating. Okay. First question. What do you wish you really understood?
3: Well, I guess I wish I understood how the brain works.
0: Me too. How do you tell somebody they have their facts wrong?
3: I think you uh, I think rather than than saying it like that, uh, I like to just uh, point out other ways of 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 thinking about things or other information they might not have been aware of.
0: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: I'd have to say, um, uh, you know, uh, something about CRISPR babies. You know, what what do I I think about CRISPR babies? I mean, that's a a question, believe me, I never could have imagined uh, somebody asking me that.
0: (laughs) What do you answer?
3: I answer, well, uh, I don't think it's a good idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: I try to deflect the conversation. You know, I try to uh, interject ideas or, or um, you know, sort of steer the conversation in a direction that I think will be will be uh, open a, open up the conversation to other participants.
0: Or to other participants, because if it's just you and the other person, they're only too happy to change the subject.
3: Well, that's and true. On, yeah, and
0: go on and on.
3: Exactly. <laughs>
0: Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a really good conversation, a true conversation?
3: I usually try to say something uh, about, you know, personal about myself and, and ask the person something about themselves, not just uh, what's your name or what do you what do you do professionally? But, you know, a little bit about like, where, where are you from or what, what's your favorite kind of food or what do you think of this, this uh, you know, dinner table conversation or something like that?
0: Yeah, that that's interesting. It's interesting to start with yourself. I, I haven't heard that said before. This, this interests me. What gives you confidence?
3: Um, well, I'd have to say that um, what gives me confidence is working with people that I trust. And um, and and that I that I enjoy uh, spending time with. I think that's that's for me. You know, that's that's what what's so wonderful about my work right now is that I I have I'm I'm surrounded by people like that. And it's it's a real pleasure.
0: Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
3: Um, I'd have to say The Making of the Atomic Bomb. It, it's a, a wonderful historical book about, you know, the work that was done in the Manhattan Project and um and it, it truly I think captures some of the not, not only just extraordinary science and, and going on in a very interesting political uh, climate, but also the struggles that those scientists had with the work they were doing, realizing the implications of what they were doing and, you know, grappling with the moral and ethical challenges that that work uh, raised.
0: This has been such an interesting conversation in so many ways, and I I thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you haven't got much time; probably every day is loaded with the kind of things we were talking about because the possibilities before you are endless.
3: There is definitely a lot going on, but I'm really delighted to, to have had the chance to talk to you. It's such an honor, uh, Alan, to to speak with you. And and um, you know, I can I just say I, I really admire your commitment to science communication it means so much of us to 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 it means so much to to many of us in the science community that you're you made that commitment
0: oh that's very kind thank you and the honor is all mine thank you so much great to talk to you you too this has been clear and vivid at least i hope so my thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on patreon you keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Jennifer Dowdner is the executive director of the Innovative Genomics Institute, an academic initiative run by UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco with the aim of fulfilling the promise of CRISPR. She's also the co founder of five companies that are commercializing gene editing technologies. For her work developing CRISPR, she shared the 2018 Kavli Prize in Nanoscience with Emmanuel Charpentier and Virginia Schicknies. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. On our next episode, I get together again
0: with a couple of my old pals from M.A.S.H., Mike Farrell and Loretta Swit. Loretta, have you noticed that Mike has a beard?
1: No, I didn't notice.
0: (laughs) How long have you been growing this? Well, since I couldn't go out anymore, I decided nobody's going to see me. What the hell? I don't give a damn. Yeah, I've reached that age where in the middle of arranging my hair, I think.
3: Oh, I love that, yeah. arranging. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there's not enough to comb anymore.
3: <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, I haven't seen a beauty parlor in months. I have finally discovered what's underneath the blonde all these years. You know, it's very white. So I, I have to, as soon as we go out and uh, make contact, I have to uh, blonde up again.
0: Mike Farrell and Loretta Swift, next time on Clear and Vivid.